0: This week's John Tap Racing Podcast is brought to you by Inglis, number one in its field. Easter Saturday 2017 was a significant day in Australian racing. At Royal Randwick, it somewhat won the Doncaster Mile, John Snow won the Australian Derby, and at the Caulfield meeting, Greg Miles brought down the curtain on a great career. Many of Greg's friends and associates at the time was surprised by his decision to retire at 57 years of age. But in calling a total of 36 Melbourne Cups, he'd already bettered Bill Collins' record and probably felt he'd done enough. Greg's life and his great race-calling career have been faithfully recorded in a new biography called Greg Miles, My Lucky Life Behind the Binoculars, published in Melbourne by Caribou Publications, written by Greg in collaboration with John Craven. Greg's online to talk to us about his life, his career and his book. Greg, you've obviously spent a lot of time lately with John Craven.
1: Yes, hello, John. I have indeed. In fact, um, uh, just soon after I retired, i have been asked by a couple of people, oh, you should write a book, you should write a book, and I had no intention of doing so. Uh, I'd seen what Joe Brown did and how much work he put into uh, into making his book, just for the record, and I didn't want to get involved in it, to be honest, but uh, John sidled up to me after one particular evening where we uh, had a uh, function at which I was uh, a guest speaker, and he said uh, – I'll help you. I I really want to do this, he said, because uh, it should be done just for the record. He used Joe Brown's line. Mm. And uh, I think it was on the second bottle of red that he talked me into it. (laughs) 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 So we did spend a lot of time together. Uh, I didn't really know John all that well 12 months ago, but we've... uh, We've managed to become good friends, despite the fact that we all we did was talk about me for 12 months, <laughs> and he's produced a, a terrific book. I'm really proud of it. Uh, Wilkinson Publishing have uh, brought it out for me, and it's uh, it's out for sale at the moment, John. So I'm hoping it does pretty well. Not not for me personally, but for John Craven, who who uh, helped me write it and put so much of uh, so much work into it.
0: Well, Greg, racing biographies uh, are coming left, right and centre in Victoria at the moment. You're, you're right on the heels of The Gouch, who launched his book only a week or so back.
1: Yeah, uh, and I was very saddened by the fact I was uh, interstate on the Melbourne Cup Tour and wasn't able to get to his launch recently. Uh, but yeah, it's funny, uh, The Gouch and, and, and my, our career sort of paralleled. We started almost at the same time and and finished within months of each other, Hmm. uh, and brought out a book together. So we're we're joined at the hip, the and I, in some ways.
0: You've been in South Australia the past week or so in an ambassadorial role, taking that coveted Melbourne Cup trophy all around the state. Now, what did that entail, Greg? You've been to a few functions, no doubt.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun, actually. Twelve months ago, um, soon after I'd retired, they contacted me from the VRC and said, would you like to be a part of this uh, Melbourne Cup tour? I hadn't really known a lot about it, but uh, it was tremendous fun uh, taking the Melbourne Cup. And, you know, as a broadcaster, we often say that what this race means to Australia, this is the Melbourne Cup, it stops the nation. And this means it's a sporting event that means so much to Australians. But I absolutely felt that firsthand by uh, taking the Melbourne Cup out on tour and meeting People, just, people who follow racing in an idle fashion or people who are really strong followers of the game, but when they get their hands on that cup and get a mm. photograph taken with it, it, it really is, uh, it brings out a lot of emotion. You know, I, I had one old fellow that I bumped into in northern Queensland in bar mm. Bob from bar he was a grey nomad uh traveling around the country he said i've been a, i've been in racing all my life he said i'm retired now but i still get down to the track at ipswich and i help out the trainers with their horses in the morning mm. and he said i follow the races every day and he said right now this is the greatest moment of my life holding mm. onto that cup uh so it, it's it's amazing and we we took it to uh, to uh, Harndorf in the Adelaide Hills and went to a place, uh, Steriline, where they make all the starting stalls, Mm. uh, which I didn't realise, and uh, showed it it off there and went to a retirement village, and that was a wonderful day and several functions and people just coming up and having their photograph taken with that iconic trophy. It's it's fabulous to be a part of it.
0: One of your co-ambassadors was the mercurial, effervescent, amazing John Letts who rode himself two Melbourne Cup winners in Piping Lane and Beldale Ball, one of racing's great characters.
1: Yeah, he sure is. Uh, he's got a great story to tell and uh, he's as sharp as a, as a whip now and uh, he's great company. Tells that story of you know the Piping Lane having never never been to Flemington before in his life mm. <laughs> and, and his first ride at Flemington was in the, in the Melbourne Cup on, on Piping Lane. Uh, extraordinary story. He he tells uh, so many funny yarns. If you ever get the chance to speak to him, Tappy, you'd uh, you'd have a, a wonderful uh, hour chatting with him, and he's great company. And um, I'll look forward to seeing him again. I think we're we're on a cruise soon after the Melbourne Cup together, so I'll uh, mm. enjoy his company again.
0: I think I'll get him on this podcast in the very near future.
1: It'd be uh, very entertaining. I can assure you of that,
0: Greg. You were at the top of your game when you decided to hang up the binoculars. Many of your friends were surprised. What was the bottom line? What brought on such a dramatic decision?
1: Well, I know it probably surprised a lot of people, but it's something I've been thinking about for quite a long time, actually. I uh, I never really wanted to stay too long in the game. I, I was desperately keen to get out on top rather than go out and uh, people say, well, about time you left, I'd rather say, people saying you left two years too early rather than two years too late so when I turned 50 I started discussing it with my wife and my family and said you know I don't want to be there and you know be, be uh, making mistakes I want somebody to tap me on the shoulder and say it's about time you went and even go before that happened so I don't know the ducks sort of lined up uh, we had things set up at home and uh, you know paid the house off and what have you we were financially not well off, but we were comfortable enough to stop if I needed to. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'd done 36 cups and it's an enormous strain. And, uh, you know, the older you get, the it doesn't get any easier, to be honest. Uh, and I thought, I'm, I'm calling pretty well, 36 Melbourne cups. It's two more than Bill Collins did. It's three more than Joe Brown. And mm. although I'm only 57, I did start young. You know, I was, a, I was only a young fellow when I got going. And, To be honest, I guess the bottom line is I felt a little bit burnt out. Um, You know better than anyone, John, uh, how taxing the game is. And uh, in this day and age, with everything on television, replays uh, instantly on all of the devices that exist these days, uh, the pressure's enormous. And I guess I just had enough of it.
0: Well, Greg, just to illustrate how taxing it is, Let me mention this story. You were greatly upset by a social media reaction to your pronunciation of a horse's name in the 2015 Caulfield Cup. The horse won the cup, in fact. His name was Mongolian Khan, but on several occasions during the call, you referred to him as Magnolian Khan. Not every time, not every run through, but some... But there yep. wouldn't have been a person watching or listening who didn't know what horse you meant. It it wasn't as though you got the name completely wrong. Yeah, yeah. It must have been. But, it must have stunned you the reaction on social media.
1: I was, uh, yeah, I, I I couldn't believe it. To be honest, it was almost like a sport. Who could who could uh, say something uh, more vitriolic and offensive than the previous guy? Mm. Uh, yeah, look, I, I don't uh, put a lot of uh, credit in those who play on social media in that way. I think, uh, you know, they're uh, middle-aged, underachieving fatsoes who sit there in stained underpants and a soiled T-shirt at a tea board and have nothing better to do than talk mm. about a lot of tripe. Mm. Um, so they don't they don't hold much credibility with me, but I must say, yeah, I made a mistake Um and uh, that that's something that happens every now and again in broadcasting but um the the vitriol that flowed after it i was staggered by it, it so much so i ended up i just turned off my uh, facebook account because there, there was nothing good in keeping it on it was only making me feel more depressed and i sort of campaigned in a little way uh, against these people because you know i'm a, I'm a grown man and uh, and i can handle it but i i fear what would happen to uh you know young teenage girls reading things like that about themselves out there in the open, unedited, and uh, it, it could be quite hurtful. So I, I just I turned mine off, I just didn't think much of them.
0: It's a funny thing about uh, when you're calling a horse race, Greg, and you've got something wrong, it's like trying to get off a bus before it stops. Uh, you can't do it. unless somebody digs you in the ribs and physically points to the race book to draw your attention, uh, to a mispronunciation or a, a misidentification, you don't even know you're doing it. No.
1: Well, to be quite honest, um, after that Caulfield Cup, I didn't know I'd made a mistake until, mm. until uh, well after the races were over. And I kept getting all this abuse on my phone. I, thought, I pulled my car over driving home and, what, what, what's all the fuss about here? Mm. And then I replayed the race and I realised then, only then uh, at the end of the day what had happened so uh, then I understood you know why why they were why everyone was having such a crack at me but um, you know there were some mitigating circumstances and I, I won't sort of go into them too deeply but I know I shouldn't I shouldn't have been there on the day I'd I'd been suffering pretty badly with a extreme bout of uh, hay fever which had affected me that entire spring and I was on medication that just to get me over the line and uh, it was a reaction to that I'd I couldn't breathe, to be honest. I thought my initial thought was because I was working on half lung capacity for the race, and I mm. I got into a bit of a panic attack because I couldn't breathe, and that was I thought the I thought the uh, the the feedback from the people was because you know I was quite breathy. Mm. Uh, it wasn't wasn't a normal sort of broadcast because I was struggling to to get oxygen, to be honest. I was really struggling mm. to to breathe, mm. and I thought that was what the reaction was. But in in sort of that That state of mild panic, thinking I was going to collapse halfway through the race, I wasn't paying attention, you know, as I should have been to the pronunciation of that horse, and that's how how it happened, you know.
0: You're a Melbourne boy through and through. You went to the Paisley High School, but you went to the Paisley High School only (laughs) (laughs) half-heartedly. And at the end of year 11, you bailed out.
1: Yeah, I uh, I finally convinced my parents and and my teachers that uh, the school I was attending wasn't really teaching what I wanted to learn. <laughs> <laughs> racing. <laughs> yeah, racing, yeah, racing. I wasn't I wasn't what you'd call uh, uh, locked on and, and paying attention when I should have been. I uh I was often just listening with an earpiece to the races and I'd I'd slip out of class to get the scratchings at the appropriate time. <laughs> I was running a school book um yeah. and, and, and dashing off to the track whenever I could. So uh, I might as well be doing that on my own time and and, and uh, out earning a quit somewhere and, and I went to a radio school and it was it was fantastic because uh, it, it just embraced everything I wanted to do. Yeah. It was um, we were we were practicing uh, radio announcing five days a week, uh, Monday to Friday, and then there was a little radio school which we operated on the weekends, including coverage of the races. Uh, and I'd do that on occasion, sometimes in the studio, and then other times I'd go out at the track and and practice calling into a tape recorder. So that was I was finally away and doing what I wanted to do by the time I was seventeen or so.
0: For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most dealings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. Well, here is one from left field. Your very first job was on the ground floor of the Meyer Building in Burke Street, Melbourne. Yes. (laughs) The role, the actual job, selling perfume.
1: Yep, yep.
0: I can't can't
1: imagine it. I was was what you'd call a fish out of water in that job, (laughs) but but the radio school that I attended uh, was run by a guy named Clark Sinclair, and uh, he had a good buddy who worked for Meyer, and uh, he was in charge of their, um, their recruiting of the, of the low-level jobs. So I said to him, look, I'm, I'm struggling to turn up here and pay my fees because I've left school, I haven't got a job. And he said, go and see this fella." And I thought, terrific, I'll get a job at Meyer. I'll be a stockman or something like that. So mm. I walked and had the interview, and he said, yep, you've got the job. Uh, you start on Monday, ground floor, Burke Street. So I thought, uh, what have they got in Grand Floor, Berkshire? I'd better go and have a look. And I wandered through and it was just, yeah, full of ladies' soaps and perfumes and hairbrushes. I learned quite a lot about uh, perfumes and soaps and hairbrushes, John, most of which I've fortunately forgotten. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was on my way anyway. I, was, I had coin in the yeah. pocket which I could go to the track with. That was the thing that mattered the most.
0: Second job a little bit more colourful, a clerk (laughs) with Victorian Railways, and you are the first to admit that you were not overworked. No, not
1: overworked. One of the ladies I worked with on ground floor Bourke Street said, you're not happy here, are you? And I said, I "I don't know how you noticed that, but that's the truth. And Mm -hmm. she said, why don't you apply for a job at the railways? My husband works there, and I know they need somebody. So I did, and I got a job at the Victorian uh, branch where they uh, the, I think it was called Rolling Stock or something like that, mm. where they uh, uh, made the trains and repaired the trains at the workshops in Newport. And I worked for an engineer named John Dunlop, <laughs> and my job lasted 10 minutes every morning. I'd just have to ring up and find out what stock they had in Rolling Stock, write it on a piece of paper, and give it to Mr. Dunlop. And that was the end of my work for the day. Goodness. Pretty make. boring stuff. <laughs> yeah.
0: Third job with the ABC. Um, yeah mail delivery boy must have been around 1978
1: yeah that's exactly right Um, again I was fortunate I sat next to in radio school a chap who worked at the ABC and he said put an application in because I know they need staff at the ABC right now it's only only like a mail delivery boy but you'll be in the building so I applied for and got that but uh, not only did we uh, deliver the mail we also had the task of painting the tyres black of all the uh, fleet cars for the ABC. So it was it was quite a responsible job uh, John, in <laughs> those days. <tasks. laughs>
0: and yet another skill you've perfected.
1: There you are. Yes, it's far more than meets the eye, isn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this is where you met a great man called Joe Brown, the ABC yeah. racing commentator and the on-track announcer. And a lovely man. He's been gone for a long time now. Was he generous with his time, Greg?
1: Uh, he was. He was wonderful. He really was. I mean, I went to the ABC, you know, on a on a uh, a whim and a, a, a fairy tale dream that maybe I'd end up being a race broadcaster there. But that was just uh, shooting for the stars and not really thinking that that would happen. But at least I was in the building and uh, I made myself known to the. Uh, sports department and uh, a guy called Dick Mason who was supervisor of the sports uh, department in those days and Peter Booth and Joe Brown and uh, they took uh, an enormous interest in what I was doing because I was I was at the track practising into a tape recorder I was calling greyhounds at Wangaratta by this time and I didn't really know but Joe Brown had made it clear to the ABC management that he was considering retirement at that time and lo and behold the sports department Had an eye on me, uh, which I I really didn't think could possibly be the case. But you know, as time unfolded and uh, they gave me a little bit bits and pieces to do, um, you know, grooming me for the moment when Joe was to retire. I didn't realise it was sort of happening. I just thought, uh, gee, I'm a bit fortunate that I've been asked to do a little TV preview. I've been asked to call the Kilmore Cup one day on my way up to call the Wangaratta Greyhounds and little bits and pieces started to fall into place and before I knew it, Joe Brown had decided to retire and uh, he said to me one day, I'm I'm going to give you everything that I've learnt because I won't need it anymore. You'll be the man and uh, mm. we formed a, a wonderful friendship, a, 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 almost a father-son sort of uh, friendship together and uh, I, I, I miss him dearly. He's been gone 16 years now and he was a great influence uh, on my life, uh, both on the track and off the track. You know, he, he, he taught me how to, how to be a man in, on a race course.
0: He retired, Greg, in 1981 after a magnificent career. Now, he was an intriguing race caller. He is the only caller I've ever known who didn't have his binoculars mounted on a swivel. Yeah, he held them by hand I couldn't believe it the first time I saw him in the box at Flemington I can't comprehend how he could do it on a great big racetrack like Flemington and he could never be talked into trying a swivel or a tripod could he
1: no no he was brought up that way he loved it uh, and he, he said there are great advantages in this you know because uh, the old broadcast boxes you know they, they weren't heated or anything like that and he said on a freezing cold day, he'd put his binoculars uh, slung around his neck under his jumper, mm. warm them up and then bring them out for the race call <laughs> <laughs> because as you would you would have experienced, John, on some of those cold days when you put the binoculars up to your to your warm face yeah. that creates a film and a mist comes over the binoculars and you can't see properly. Yeah. So so Joe had that, that covered <laughs> yeah. uh, in the, the prehistoric way broadcast boxes were built. But he's, yeah, he would not—he uh, would not change. He loved uh, having them on that stand and holding them. And he made me call a race at Sandown one day. He said, "You'll get to like this." So I used his stand, and it was the worst decision I'd ever made. I—I I could hardly see the horses. I don't know how he steadied the binoculars properly mm. on that on that little stand. But it wasn't for me. I was a—I was a swivel man like like you and most of us. But mm. but that was Joe, and uh, it, it worked for him beautifully.
0: He wasn't the only inspiration for a young Greg Miles. You'd also been greatly influenced by people like Bert Bryant and Bill Collins.
1: Yeah, I guess really every broadcaster that was coming along uh, in that era when they were the two fighting out the, uh, the ratings and you had uh, Joe Brown on course. So listening on the, on the radio, the brilliant Bert Bryant and the outstanding Bill Collins and when you got to the track, you heard Joe Brown. This was the you know, triumvirate of golden race callers, I, I think, and they had a huge influence on anybody that was, you know, aspiring to be a caller in those days. I, I didn't think I'd ever be like Bert Bryant. I didn't want to be, but I admired what he did. But he was a one-off, you know, a comedian as well as a broadcaster. But Bill was just the unflappable uh, maestro, uh, a, a genius in race reading and uh, inflection of his voice. And I guess every, every broadcaster wants to be a little bit uh, like Bill Collins if you're, a, if you're a Melbourne man. If you're a Sydney man, you wanted to be like John Tapp. Uh, but, but Bill Collins was the man who, uh, who was a great inspiration to me.
0: Greg, you did something in 1986 which required nerves of steel. You were struggling to save enough money to buy your first house and with Alison's approval, God bless her, you put the total savings, which amounted to $4,000 at that time, on Campaign King in the William Reed Stakes. I think Harry White was the jockey. Yep. He fell in. He fell in.
1: He did, yeah. It was a crazy thing and if I tried to pull off a stunt like that today (laughs) I don't think Alison would have any piece of it but somehow she did we were Mm. we were struggling and I'm sure you know young people trying to buy a house even today it's the same case the more you save the higher the prices and they seem to be just getting away from you all the time Mm. and uh, in those days you needed a 10% deposit and we weren't getting it and uh, we'd come back from a Pretty uh, expansive holiday overseas when we got married in '85. We spent just about everything we had then. When we came back, we would managed to scrape together about four grand, and we weren't going anywhere. We weren't we weren't earning enough anyway. So I said, "I've got an idea," because I'd, <laughs> I'd done a few television stories for the ABC, and I'd met um I'd met Les Theodore, and and gone up to his stables at Berrigan up in far northeastern Victoria, and saw the horse in his final gallop. And Liz said to me, "You know he's unbeatable, don't you?" And I said, "Is he?" He said, "He is absolutely unbeatable." So I came home and I said to Alison, "I've got an idea. We <laughs> might have a little bet." <laughs> and she said, how much, "How much? do you want to use of it?" And I said, "All of it." <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought a three-year-old, you know, returning from a spell, he might be—he might be three or four to one. So I pulled the money out and gave it to uh, a guy called Harold Ford, who was Joe Brown's best mate. Mm. He was always at the track. I said, just do your best. And he came back, he said, it's only six to four. He said, I might get seven to four. And that's about it. Mm. And I, in, in, in harsh reality, I should have just canceled the bet, but I'd gone to all the trouble to get the cash out, John, and it was cash in those days. Mm. So I said, I'll send it around. Just do what you can. We averaged 13 to eight. And, uh, Just before the home turn, anyway, campaign king, he got knocked over. And I actually didn't see it happen until I saw the replay. And he he lunged and he just got up right on the line. And it it took an eternity for the photo finish to come through. But uh, when it did, when the number did go in the frame, I I think I blew the radio sets apart, anyone that was listening to me. (laughs) (laughs) Goodness me. Yeah, it was a a nerve-wracking moment. But uh, anyway... He got the money, and uh, we got the deposit for
0: the home. You got to call Kingston Town?
1: Yeah, I did. Um, I was so thrilled. When Joe Brown retired, he retired in June 81, and he left me with Kingston Town and Manicato uh, in their prime. So I got to call him twice uh, in, in Cox Plates and a few other races, of course. In a Melbourne Cup, I called him second to Gurners Lane. And I got to call the, the great Minocato many, many times. So uh, I was very, very fortunate to uh, to kick off with two great champions at the time.
0: You called the memorable clash between Bone Crusher and our Waverly star in the Cox Plate, and your call was outstanding. But Greg, it got a bit lost, didn't it, with the impact of Bill Collins' legendary description?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday, that uh, 86 Cox Plate. Uh, I was in the far right-hand broadcast box. Immediately to my left was Bruce McEvaney. He was calling the races for Channel 10 at the time, and Bill was down the end uh, calling for Channel 7 and on course and the whole lot. And I remember finishing my race and thinking, what a race that was. I've, I've never seen a race like it. And a few minutes later, uh, we came out of the broadcast boxes, and uh, Bruce said to me, how'd you go? And I said, I think all right. I said, how did you go? And he said, yeah, I think all right too. Mm-hmm. And then we heard Bill Collins' call and we realised, yeah, we just went okay up the cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. it, it was a gem, wasn't it? Oh, it was just one of those. It was poetry. How he managed to, uh, to put those words together at the end of such a dramatic race. We're all exhausted. They all took off at the half mile. Mm. Uh, it was an extraordinary race and Bill just uh, nailed it. Uh, a race call for the ages for sure.
0: A horse for whom you formed a deep attachment was Northerly, 19 wins, $9.3 million in prize money, nine group ones. You gave him yep. a great nickname, Greg.
1: He was a beauty, yeah. I, it, just, it, it just fell out that one day he was in the lead-up to one of the Caulfield Cups. He was just fighting like mad on the rails in this race, and I just said, he's he's fighting like a tiger, this horse. So I thought, oh, that sounded all right. I'll, I'll use that. So mm-hmm. I, I dubbed him the Fighting Tiger. Mm. And he raced, he raced in the Richmond colors, the yellow and black of the Tigers, so it was more than apt. And mm. uh, the connections loved it. Fred Kersley said, keep using that. He said, I love that fighting Tiger because that's exactly what he is, you know. He, uh, he wasn't a pretty horse. He, he had an ungainly action, and um, he, he was that sort of champion, he, With a, a champion with a fault, you know. Mm. Uh, and that's what I sort of admired of him, um, and he took on the handicapper several times. That Caulfield Cup, which he won with 58 kilos with Greg Charles and Bob, was just, I think, one of the great Caulfield Cups. And uh, yeah, he struck a chord with me. With me, I just, I love his fighting attitude.
0: You greatly admired that wonderful mare Sunline, winner of 32 races and 11.3 million, couple of Cox Plates. I'd finished race calling Greg by the time she won her second Cox Plate. And you know, I can remember sitting in the studio. Uh, watching the race on the monitor uh, right next to the presentation desk and I suddenly found myself with a lump in the throat and Mm -hmm. tears in the eye because I I couldn't believe what I was witnessing. I couldn't believe that any horse could treat a field of good horses with such contempt. She won by seven lengths that day, beating Diatribe. Tribe. He was useful. He only won a Caulfield Cup. Yeah, referral ran third. He won a Group One, the George Ryder. She played with him.
1: Yeah, she she dismantled that field, didn't she? Much like Winks uh, in the Turnbull Stakes last year. Mm. Um, she was absolutely at the peak of her game. She loved Moonee Valley, loved the turn. She could just get around that canvas so well, and uh, oh, she was a beauty. That was that was one of the breathtaking wins in the in the Cox Plate that year, and i remember listening to brian martin's call and he said she's the greatest in the world and i think uh, she did make that statement that day she was the greatest in the world on that occasion but we saw that many many times with her and you know again i love the fact that she took on the handicapper a couple of times at Epsom's, and you know they were they weren't afraid to travel her. she went overseas and she was a great ambassador for thoroughbred racing
0: Mm, but greg more than that she didn't just sit back in the field or posse up one off the fence in the middle of the field and uh, have a breather. She did all the donkey work. Yeah. If she uh, didn't she lead, a- she was right on the pace, wasn't she?
1: Yeah, yeah, a very, very aggressive man. She was aggressive on the track and off the track, wasn't she? She was a real handful for Claire Bird. She found out a few times yeah. that she was, she was a feisty girl. She was, a, yeah, a real tough nut.
0: You love B Diva. And you were quite emotional in the closing stages of her third Melbourne Cup win. That's when you uh, came forth with one of your uh, Perla cliches.
1: Well, the champion becomes a legend. Yeah, the, the uh, I thought something had to be said because we we're in you know, territory that we'd never been to before with the Melbourne Cup for a horse to be going for a third win. And, uh, you know, that was a... a it was a, a great lead up to it because Lee Friedman wasn't sure that he was going to run her. She just trotted in the cop's plate on the, on the Saturday. And then, you know, it was, a, it was a, a real journey. Will she be starting? Won't she be starting? There were helicopters flying over his Markdale property down on the Mornington Peninsula waiting for the answer. Would she be running? Journalists hanging out the trees. Mm. And then finally, when he decided, yes, she'll start, the build up to that Melbourne Cup was like nothing I've experienced before. And on the Monday prior to the Melbourne Cup, we had a, a radio preview where I was part of a panel and we were interviewing all the trainers and the riders and, and guests. And one of the guests was Bruce McEvaney. And he said, uh, I'm sure that Greg's got a line prepared for that uh, inevitable finish just as I had for Cathy Freeman's 2000 Olympics. Mm. And when he said that, my heart stopped because <laughs> I hadn't thought of, I hadn't thought of anything mm. at that point. And I thought, well, here's the great Bruce MacAvani saying that you should have a loan prepared by now. and I hadn't. <laughs> so I had a pretty sleepless Monday night and I played a replay of a Cox plate. and I can't remember who said it. it might have been it might have been me, it might have been Brian Martin, I'm not sure, but one one of us said, what a legend she is. It's just after the race. And I thought mm. that that'd work if if she could if she could pull it off and win the race, mm. that's what I'll say. And God love her, she uh, she made it pretty easy, John. She had it one a fair way from home, and it it was pretty easy to say the line. I must admit, I didn't I didn't think it would uh, reverberate and still be being spoken about some thirteen years later. I I just thought, well, you yeah, got that over and done with. What's next on the card?
0: Which <laughs> uh, about which of Black Caviar's wins inspired another one of your famous cliches and a very poetic one, I might add. Brutal power locked in an elegant machine.
1: Yeah, I think that was her last start in Victoria, actually. That would have been the William Reid Stakes under the lights. That's the last time I called her. Uh, she went up to Sydney after that for the TJ Smith. And uh, the last time I called her was at William Reid And, uh, yeah, she had a Facebook page her own, you know, uh, Black Caviar, Mm. and uh, she sent me a message. She said, uh, I quite like that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's lovely stuff. Greg, you were at Royal Ascot uh, the day she won there, and just won, I might add, and gave uh, her fans around the world an almighty shock. But the very same day, Frankel won the Queen Anne by 11 lengths. He yeah, was, was one of the the great horses of the modern era. In fact, you've said ever since that you saw the two best horses in the world win on the same day.
1: Yeah, that um, was quite amazing. I think he might have won on the Tuesday and she won on the Saturday, but they oh. both won at the same program, and uh, mm. uh, it was enormous. Um, uh, he was, he was a, a, an absolute freak, an absolute freak. And uh, I actually got to uh, see him in uh, – after he let down at Stud a couple of years ago, and he's uh, just an, the most gentle horse. You wouldn't believe that uh, he, he's a powerful stallion. That he is. He's, he'll just he'll just nuzzle up to you and give you a little cuddle. Uh, the great Frankel, uh, enormous. Uh, he, he was. He's quite an emotional story, uh, a wonderful story, and a great racehorse. And to see him, and he he just pulled that field apart and just killed him. And the local racegoers were, were chiding us Australians, saying, well, that's our best. We'll see if your best is just as good in a couple of days' time. Yeah. And we were saying, don't you worry, you'll see the best in the world. Well, unfortunately, she wasn't at her best uh, at that Royal Ascot by any stretch. And I think uh, Peter Moody's made it clear a few times that had he been at home, he would have scratched her. But mm. because they were right over there, he said, you know, we'll just we'll put it down to her courage and let's see if she can pull it off. And she managed to do so, but only just... Uh, she did give us all a fright, that's for sure.
0: Greg, there have been so many gems during your race-calling career. Another one that comes to mind was Lon Rose Australian Cup and the 1999 Caulfield Guineas, that marvellous war between Redoute's Choice and Testa Rossa. That really brought the best out in Greg Miles. You got to call Winks about six times. Uh, you did her first two Cox Plates and her win in the Group 1 Ladbrokes so many yeah. wonderful memories, and you've left uh, a great legacy. Uh, when one now listens to the video replays of those races,
1: oh well, I just feel uh, you know I, I love the racing game, just as every race broadcaster does. You wouldn't do the job unless you did, and uh, it's 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 a thrill, it's an absolute privilege when you get the opportunity to, to call these uh, these great races, and you you know you like to uh, to, to make a mark and 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 sort of let the call live up to you know, what you're witnessing. Um, and it's it's just a it's a thrill to be able to do so. and it's something I miss now, but um, oh, I'm happy that I've had a great career and enjoyed every every minute of it.
0: There were lots of humorous stories. I like this one about the two women wearing oh. big hats and carrying champagne flutes, who somehow found their way onto a balcony, just outside your broadcasting blocks, which would have obstructed your view as the field went out of the straight in the Melbourne Cup. Yeah. You had to do something and you had to do it urgently. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That was the uh, 1989 Melbourne Cup. The on-course broadcaster, Frank O'Brien, had retired that year and uh, I I got appointed as the on-course caller. So I moved into a new broadcast box closer to the line and uh, it was a it was a big improvement on where I used to be about twenty odd metres before the post. So, but uh, I'd I not even noticed. But right alongside me was a, a corporate box with a balcony. And right through the six months leading up to the Melbourne Cup, it remained empty. And all Derby Day, it was empty. And all Melbourne Cup Day, it was empty too. <laughs> until they jumped in the Melbourne Cup, and over my right shoulder, it was like you get that funny feeling, like. I feel like somebody's watching. It's like somebody was reading the newspaper over your shoulder. You know, you Mm. lose that 100% uh, concentration. Mm. And I just slewed, had a quick look to my right, and you're right. There were two large ladies, massive hats, sporting champagne. They weren't watching the Cup. They were watching me. Very, uh, very uh, uh, unnerving. So I thought, what will I do here? I'm still calling a race down the straight the first time, but my mind's working out. I've got to do something. You've got to get rid of these women. I couldn't say, excuse me, ladies, I'm calling a Melbourne cup Would you mind getting out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I reached over and, and put my race book in my right hand, and as they went down past the judge the first time, I swatted them like flies, and they scurried out of the way. So, you know, we, we didn't we didn't actually exchange any words, but they knew exactly what I meant
0: at that moment. <laughs> you swatted <laughs> them like flies.
1: I've never seen them before and I've never seen them since.
0: Greg, you're still being heard on a regular basis on Melbourne Radio RSN every Saturday morning. You start pretty early, about 7 o'clock. The first segment is called The First Word. Uh, Later on, you're joined by panellists Dean Lester, Warren Huntley and Matt Stewart. It's a two-hour program and you're enjoying it.
1: Yeah, loving it, John. uh, It's it kicks me involved in in the game. It forces me to do the form, which I like doing. So I spend all day Friday, and then I I get in there and uh, and we we speak to all the trainers and the jockeys with the major chances of the day. And it kicks off our uh, RSN racing uh, uh, coverage on the Saturday. And it's two hours that I love doing. You know, get in there and argy bargy with the boys and try and tip a winner or two. It's uh, you know, I, I think if you if stop completely, uh, you'd go you know semi mad. So it's a good way just to uh, to ease out of it, and I, I enjoy doing it for those couple of hours on a Saturday.
0: Well, good luck with the book, mate. It's uh, it's going to be a winner for you, I know. It's called Greg Miles, My Lucky Life Behind the Binoculars. But I can tell you, on behalf of your legion of fans around Australia, uh, I think it was uh, the listeners who had the lucky life.
1: Uh, Thanks John That's uh, really very kind of you I hope it does go well And uh, it was good fun Good fun uh, uh, Writing it with John Craven But it's been real good fun Talking to you my friend It's been a terrific time
0: Thanks Greg Thanks for your time on the podcast And this won't be the last time Thanks Tappy Good to talk to you Talk to you soon And this podcast has been produced By Supernova Sound For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most dealings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis number one in its field.